0: Welcome to Communion and Shalom. In this podcast, we are exploring how the biblical and historic Christian faith can engage sexuality, ethnicity, culture, and our local communities as we pursue the flourishing of God's kingdom. Our goal is to engage these topics charitably and with nuance. Hello friends, welcome to another episode of Communion and Shalom. In this episode we are going to join in conversation with my friend Paul Anthony, a philosopher and pastor raised in Seventh-day Adventism who used to be side B but is now side A. This conversation is a longer one and wide-ranging. It will most likely be appealing to the more philosophically and theologically inclined among us, though we hope it has something for everyone. I really enjoyed this conversation. Paul Anthony is an engaging conversation partner And I hope all of our listeners will be able to reflect on and wrestle with his thoughts and perspectives. Well, I'm not sure if it is clear in the episode, he and I actually come from a similar background and sensibility in how to approach some of the questions we are considering. For example, we are both working within the hermeneutical tradition broadly, and I'm also very sympathetic to the phenomenological tradition that Paul Anthony is working from. Before I go on. I want to provide a few definitions as an aid to those of us who have not been in a philosophical conversation for a while. First, ontology. Ontology is part of the larger branch of philosophy called metaphysics. It is the study of being, existence, and reality, and it often focuses on questions around the very nature of something. Ontology is trying to answer the question, what makes a thing what it is? Next epistemology, the study of knowledge and how we can know things including distinguishing truth and justified belief from falsehood. Epistemology is, you might say, trying to answer the question of how we can know. Next, teleology. Teleology is reflection on the purposes, ends, and goals of things in the world. You could say it answers the question, what is a thing's goal or purpose? Teleological thought has been prominent in the Christian theological and ethical tradition and its various instantiations. Phenomenology is a study of the structure of consciousness examined from the first person stance. Phenomenology is complex, but you might say that it focuses on answering, how does my experience affect my engagement with the world? Finally, hermeneutics is the art and science, theory and methods of interpretation. Hermeneutics... I guess you could say refers to the framework through which people are interpreting something, and is often specifically used of texts such as the Bible, philosophical texts, or other literature. As a more general comment, for those of you who are interested in the larger conversation between side A and side B, Paul Anthony, in my opinion, is someone to watch. His kindness, intelligence, and charisma, I think will make him a prominent person in the conversation going forward. Well, I, of course, hope he will return to Side B in the future. I'm sure he is, and will continue to be a blessing for the, to the Side A community. Thank you again for listening. On to the episode. Okay, hi, everyone. Today I'm here with my friend, Paul Anthony Turner. So this is part of our series where we've been engaging Side A voices, trying to understand What's the difference between side A, side B, why people become side A, and yeah, you know, how? what does it mean to fit together in the church somehow, even if we're in we make pretty different decisions or pretty different beliefs or we live our lives in different ways. So I basically knew Paul Anthony through a mutual friend. I had seen him previously in some side B spaces. Maybe I started Revoice once. I, we were on a common Facebook group. Mm-hmm. But my friendship with... Our mutual friend was the main connection I had to you. He just mm-hmm. mentioned you some at different points, right? And then he um, once told me that you became side A. May I don't know when it was, maybe five months ago. I don't know, maybe four months ago, something like that. And I started engaging in your content because he pointed me to your an Instagram page, your Instagram page, where you a, a few of your posts, some recent posts, were on this topic, like why you shifted from side B to side A. And I think through that, I found that you had a YouTube channel. And I I think it's not oh, active boy. right now, but it's this past channel where you were talking about the topic when you were side B, I think.
1: Yeah, I was But then, side B at the time.
0: But then it, I don't know when you ended, maybe a year ago. I'm not sure when you ended the, or when it has not, I'm not sure how long it's not been active, but maybe a year. I don't know. It was actually so, right
1: before. It was right before I became side A. Something something started. I think it was this the shift I noticed. I was in, just kind of demotivated me from coming from a kind of neutral posture that I was trying to. I was trying to navigate sure. in between side A, side B, and once I felt myself leaning more side A, I was kind of like, I was like, well, I might be shifting a little bit. So that's why, yeah, I stopped about a year and a half ago or so. Got it.
0: So I I loved your voice in particular because you brought the Pastoral, because you have a history of a pastor. You went to seminary, I know. You also brought the philosophical, because you're a philosopher. You're studying to be a philosopher right now as we speak. So you bring this pastoral, philosophical, cognitive, intuitive, and you bind it all together in a lot of kindness. And I think that's an incredibly valuable posture in the conversation. And I really want, I was like, man, we talked to we've talked to three other side A people before. But I was like, but Paul Anthony, he his voice hasn't been present yet in the people we've talked with. Like he's doing something else, a little bit different. So I want him to be on this podcast for all of our listeners to engage with, like your perspective, your voice, like why, how you're putting these pieces together. And thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, we're we're honored to have you actually. So yeah, maybe you'll say a little about yourself in case I told you my intro. But I'd love to hear more from you about your background and about yourself.
1: Sure. So I was raised raised Christian from the time I was really little by my mom. My mom raised me and my little sister. She always had us in church and involved in church church activities. I went to a small a small Christian school growing up. Particularly my mom raised us in the Seventh day Adventist Church. And to this day I Maintain some kind of a relation to the Adventist Church. I can explain that, what that means in a second. But yes, I was raised Seventh day Adventist and I still maintain a lot of the, those beliefs and practices and outlooks on life, et cetera. But as, so I came out in 2000, 2016, in like February or March. And since then, my my pastor, like, I, I began to like shift in how. I approached matters pastorally because I was studying to be a pastor and I did pastor for a short time. But coming out really changed the way I thought about myself as a queer person, how I thought about other queer people, because it had been very, it was, I had a very myopic view of us. I thought that we were all just like really bad and really sinful. It was, a, you know, it was a choice, you know, kind of thing like that. Me coming out and then me serving as a pastor while I was out and then losing my job because i was out and then surfing suffering persecution at the hands of my local church that i was raised in for part of my life all those things conspired together to give me the kinds of pastoral pastoral concerns that i have and pastoral approaches to this matter of how to ministering of how to minister to lgbt people that i have eventually some of this past this past year, I joined the Disciples of Christ or the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which is, at least officially, they're open to LGBT They're They're an affirming denomination by and large, a very progressive denomination. So I joined them and I'm working on finally actually getting ordained or receiving the laying on of hands. And so I can serve as a pastor in that capacity. So in the last three years or so, I've been fulfilling my pastoral obligations in whatever ways that I can. Not serving in any traditional pastoral role, but you know trying my best. Especially to be an advocate for LGBT people in the church which is what which is one of my main purposes that i I know God has put within me or what have you again is to to pastor LGBT people and to to advocate for their place in the church so that's a little bit about where where I came from I always knew I was gay from the time I was very little I knew I was very different and it's just interesting to note how my approach to my own spirituality is so very heavily informed by me being a queer person and also how i approach people pastorally is informed by how i um by my, by my queerness mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: could you unpack that a little bit you said you always knew you were different or you were queer from when you were very young like what did that mean and i asked in part because <laughs> i had no categories when i was young so i didn't okay
1: <laughs> understand so yeah tell me tell us about that oh okay well yeah, growing me. up growing up i went to i was in all black settings everyone i knew until eighth grade, virtually everyone I knew, anyone who was close to me, was black. And in whether at school or at church, wherever. And black culture, because of the traumas we have suffered because of white imperialism and colonialism, we have a certain brand of homophobia that's very unique to us, or, you know, it's very specific to us. And there's a certain way it feels. And, you know, growing up in that environment, I just knew what was going on, even though I didn't know a whole lot about sexuality. I was just a little boy. I knew what was going on, I knew what it meant when I was called fag or gay at six, seven, eight years old. I knew that there was something that people were picking up about me that was different from the other boys. There was something that they were getting, and I, and I felt that, like I I also knew, it wasn't just them being mean, it was, no, there actually really is something different. I'm over here walking around singing, <laughs> singing, you are the sunshine of my <laughs> okay i was such a little queer (laughs) i was a stereotype and it was really cute yeah i was like really musical not that there aren't straight guys who are musical but there was a certain way i would do it that was very in tune with my feelings in a way that straight guys they just aren't for whatever reasons they aren't which you know really complex and so I just, yeah, I knew that what they were saying wasn't just them just being mean. Like, no, I was like, I, I recognize it too. And so I knew from a, the time I was a little boy, oh yeah, you're you're quite different. However, again, because I was in that community, and I still am, I'm black, I knew how to keep it under wraps. I grew to learn how to keep it under wraps so that you don't continue to receive the stigma, the treatment, the looks. Yeah, yeah. It, so I was just very aware of it, but I kept it under wraps for years until I got into i mean you know through 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 high school, through middle school into thank God I went to a small thank God, I went to a small Christian school where there weren't really any cute guys whatsoever. It made it really <laughs> easy to, well, I don't know if I want to thank, say thank God, but I was able to be in the closet and, and keep from getting beat up for being gay or whatever I don't know. it was a lot easier to be in the closet. Let me just say that like there was nothing bringing me out. <laughs> But then in college, that's where I started to meet queer people in number, and I I started to realize, well, I have a lot of prejudice in my heart, and that's not good. But then I had my biblical, what I thought were biblical justifications for it, and then also I started to meet transgender people, and so that was a that was a whirlwind, and so there's this all these different <laughs> me having the experience of my sexuality that I did set me up to have an outlook on other queer people that now I completely disagree with, and it was in coming to terms with my own prejudice and beginning to listen to my own body, listen to my own pains and take seriously the pains that other people have, the bodies that other people have, the experiences other people have, that I was able to, I guess, get to where I am. That's, that's very broad stroke, but that's, that's kind of how it auto went down. Nice. Can you talk about
0: that? So you were a side B for a while when you were young, maybe prior to college, were you side B or were you something else? Did did side B come come in college or seminary for you? Like what what was that process like? Yeah, that's a good question. So
1: to be very specific, so let's say that we have side B and it's an umbrella. Like if we say side B and we're just using as an umbrella term for three persuasions in particular, namely side X at the one far extreme and then side Y and then side B proper, I would say I was probably more, between side Y and side X. So side X, you know, for the, I don't know if, how familiar they are with the terminology, but side X referring to people who said, you know, the sexual orientation is bad. Calling yourself gay is bad. Having gay sex is bad. And then side Y is the, the orientation is not inherently bad, but don't call yourself gay and certainly don't have gay sex. So I think I fell somewhere in between there. I never really thought that I should and must overcome having the orientation but i thought i would be better off without it and i certainly did not go around calling myself gay until i came out in 2016 and that's when i was like no i'm <laughs> I'm, I'm i am definitely a homosexual essential like there's no <laughs> getting around that like sure super gay uh huh but yeah even at that point i was still i still had a very negative view of what it means to be gay it wasn't actually until i graduated from undergrad where i had studied theology um i had you know i had gone through this existential crisis that that after i had fallen in love with someone one of my friends i had gone through this existential crisis that really softened my heart toward my not only other queer people but myself as a queer person and so then after but you know i still had some ideological steps to go through in order to become side b or even side Y, for goodness sake but i think once i came out that's when I became side y I would say that's when I was very much there, yeah, okay with the orientation, or maybe I was in between side y and side b I was okay with the orientation, I was okay with calling myself gay, but of course the gay sex thing wasn't great then i went then I was pastoring during the summer of two thousand and seventeen before I went to seminary in the fall of seventeen, and I came out to my congregation i mean i was I was Big umbrella side B. And so I was kind of like, I mean, this shouldn't be a problem, right? Like, and it caused this whole thing, like this whole thing in the congregation. And that's when I, I finally saw for the first time, like really saw, oh, so this is what other LGBT people have said they've, they have experienced. And when they say, and I would just kind of say like, well, things aren't that bad. Maybe you should just do this and it wouldn't happen. So kind of a victim blaming kind of thing that I was doing. And it was when I finally had that experience of being persecuted myself that I was like, oh, okay. And so that's when I became an advocate. I started to advocate for LGBT people in the church, whether side A or side B, what have you. I just wanted to be an advocate as a pastor. Then I went into seminary and that's where I started studying some philosophy and and some other things. I had been studying some philosophy before. Philosophy really shook the cobwebs off my mind, shook oh, yeah. some of the, the dust, <laughs> you know. That, that that wonderful postureless posture. But that's where I I finally actually had some association with IB. I read West, West Hill's Spiritual Friendship. I think I still have that book sitting. Yeah, I can see it sitting on my shelf. I still have it. Great book, great book. And that's where I finally realized, oh, like, it's okay for me to celebrate the fact that I'm gay. Like, at that point, I didn't, I wasn't down with the whole, I wasn't down with gay marriage or gay sex or anything like that. But I was like, oh, so I can go to a pride event or I can celebrate the fact that I bond with other men in a way that straight men don't, that, that that doesn't come intuitive to them. Or I, you know, you know, there's just all these different things. And I was like, oh, so I can actually celebrate being gay. That was revolutionary for me. I can actually remember where I was standing, where I was physically standing, the very stream I was, sta- I was, I was being all spiritual one day, shoes off, walking in the stream. <laughs> I was at this Adventist summer camp and I was working as a chaplain for this, for a few weeks. And I was re- reading his book and I was like walking in the stream and I was reading one portion of his book and he said something, about, I think he was quoting something from C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how God uses even the broken things in our lives for good. And I was like, well, what if that was my orientation? Like there's something beautiful about it and I should celebrate it. And so that's when I started to just think about my gayness as just a good thing instead of a, instead of a broken thing. That needs to be discarded or or denied it was i I became more interested gosh, I haven't said this in a long time i I became more interested in finding the redeemable and redemptive qualities in my being gay. I haven't said that phrase in such a long time, but I used to say that a lot when I was side b like I'm really interested in finding the redeemable and redemptive qualities of my homosexuality, and so from there I became very side very side b just very outspoken, and that's where I became. I guess this face of side B in the Adventist world. <laughs> I did not ask for it, but there it was. And so, yeah, that, that's how that's how I became side B. And I just throughout seminary, I was side B until more recently. <laughs>
0: was it easy in your seminary to be side B, or were they skeptical of side B? Maybe they favored side
1: X or side Y or something. I don't know. You want to know? You want to know something? I, I don't know because I was so confident in myself as a side B person. I was confident, one, that I wasn't violating any of the church's teachings, technically. So there's that. Like, what are you going to say? And if someone gets into an argument with me about it, I'm no dummy. So I'm going to work my way. I'm going to work my way around with that person. So so they can't get me there on any church policy or any church doctrine. And then as far as I know that, you know, as a male, I have certain privileges because it's a male dominant field. I have a a friend who's a woman and was in seminary with me, and she was persecuted very strongly. She came out as side A, but they didn't have to do what they did to her. And I, I'm sure that part of that had to do with her being a woman. So I know I had that privilege. I had my personality. Most of the people in the, many of the people, of this, I'm just, I was good with them and the professors. So so I think it was just, it was easy in the sense that no one was gonna bother me. <laughs> no one was gonna bother me for for a variety of reasons. There were still the ignorant things that people would say about queer people that drove me crazy. There were still times I had to speak up in class and clarify things, especially as I became more okay with side A, when people would say things about side A, I would come and say, well, that's not how, that's not what's. I mean, I might not be side A, but that's not how that works. I was like, I know that just because I was also while, this is important actually, while I was in seminary, my seminary is attached to a larger school, a, a university. And I was in charge of this LGBT care group that let's say there were 20 to 25 students or whatever, 90% of them were side A or are side A, maybe even more than that, 95. Maybe even more than that. And so I I really struggled for a while with, well, how do I reconcile the fact that I believe this and I believe that this is a a matter of incredible moral significance and salvific importance, at least I did at the time. And these people over here with my side, a friends don't believe that. And yet I see the spirit of God working in their lives. And the spirit of God is the seal of salvation in these people's lives. And, you know, I was really, I really wrestled with that. And so pastorally, because I was in charge of this, I was in charge. I was when I was a a student leader of this group. I was in charge of spiritually guiding this group of people that, that I partly disagree with. And, and so it really challenged me. It was like, how do I minister to them? And I disagree. So that started to decide, yeah, yeah. It really challenged my my soteriology, my, my beliefs about salvation and and, and discipleship and, and, and all these different things. And so when I was in seminary classes and people would say things about side A people, I was like, honey, that's not how that works. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry to bust your bubble. That's not how that works. So it was being in seminary was, was easy, but also it was challenging because. Quite frankly, straight people say stupid stuff just to say mm. it like that. They say real Mm-mm. dumb stuff. <laughs>
0: mm. Yeah, <laughs> that seems quite right. Could you also tell me, as you became side B, how did your family react? Or what was that sort of situation in your
1: household where you come from? So when I, when I became side B? Yeah. When you so, you side know, B. interestingly, mm-hmm. so when I came with my mom and my sister, we were, we were having an explosive argument. I was doing a pastoral pastoral internship during the summer of 2016. And it was actually here in Louisville at the local church that I was a member of. Get to that later, maybe. (laughs) He said somewhat pettily. But anyways, God's still working on me. So I was pastoring in this church. I had come out in February or March of that same year, 2016. I realized a couple months, two or three or four months later that I was in love with my best friend at the time. And then it just caused this roller coaster of emotions where I was suicidal or at least Suicidal in the sense that I wanted to die. I guess that does count as suicidality. Asking God to take my life. It was the only time in my life I've ever prayed that kind of prayer or wanted that. Like, yeah, it was. It was. It was a really rough eight months. Really tough. The toughest, most emotionally and spiritually exhausting period of my life. And I was pastoring during that time and whatnot. And so one day, my mom and I got into an argument about something really insignificant. It wasn't about the argument whatsoever. Or the the thing that I was wanting to argue about was not the matter we were actually arguing about. And it was okay. not with her. My, her okay. my gripe was with God. <laughs> okay, sure. And so she, I guess she kind of took on God. And she was God for me at that moment. I was just like, yelling at her. And I said, whatever I said, the next thing I said, and you're the reason I'm gay and you don't even care. Oh. Something like yeah, <laughs>
0: you put a big burden on her with that. It was a
1: hint. lot. Don't worry. Since then, we have cleared up that my mom is Good. not responsible for Good. me being gay. <laughs> the only responsibility she has of me being gay is her exposing me to endless hours of Golden Girls growing up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that is the reason I'm gay. Yeah, I to this day I can quote all the lines from every Golden Girls, but. But yeah, so that's when I came out to my mom. Isn't during this explosive argument we were having. My sister was also there. They didn't know that I was gay. So when I came out there, I was still in that, I guess, X between X and Y kind of zone. That that zone right there. And so, yeah, my mom. And when I and later a few days later, when we finally had calmed down and cleared things up, my, my grand uncle had also died. That we found out within thirty minutes or so of that argument and me coming out that my grand uncle had died. And so we were, we had to attend to all those things in the next several days. So eventually I went to my mom and I was like, yo, I haven't heard anything from you. That doesn't feel good as a queer person. And so, and you know, cause parents disown their kids. And she was like, basically oh, there was no, there was no chance in hell of me ever, of me ever disowning you. Like that was, that was, that was never going to happen. My mom p- very clearly, and noticeably, did not ask me who I had slept with, if I was sleeping with anyone, what my theology is, whatever. She just said, "I am your, I am your mother. I care about you." That was that. I, I remember very clearly. In fact, I felt like I needed to volunteer that information about, <laughs> yeah, I'm celibate yeah. all these things. But my yeah, mom, yeah. my mom just has always been incredibly supportive. My sister as well, and my father, my father as well. He doesn't live in Lowell, but. My father has been incredibly supportive. My father was side A before any of us were <laughs> In fact, when I came out to my father in the summer of nineteen, so this is three summers later, my father he had he he knew I was gay. he he knew because I never dated anyone, and he was like, "Oh, well, I'm just waiting for you to come out." He's like, "I don't know why you're doing this whole celibate side B thing, but if you feel like you need to do that, good, and if anyone ever gives you any you know any trouble about it. And then he he pat his gun. There we go. Um, <laughs> that was that on that. Yeah, yeah. My my sister has always been incredibly supportive. And so essentially, my mom and my sister, I think my sister probably became affirming before I did. Um, my mom basically has tagged along wherever I've gone. Just basically wherever I am in the process, she was there, such that two Octobers ago. When I had, I had just come back from this LGBT affirming side A conference, the reformation project. And I had, you know, I knew my dad was affirming, but I never knew if my mom had transitioned alongside with me from side B to side A. And so I was just talking with her on the phone in the airport. And I was like, you know, Hey mom, I'm just wondering, um, it won't matter to me where you stand because I, you, my mom was the kind of mom who was, was going to pride events, giving out free mom hugs to kids, to LGBT kids. When she was side B in 2019, so quite frankly, I was like, "That's like I, I don't. If you're side B and you're still doing those kinds of things and you're advocating for us in other ways, I don't really. I'm not gonna die if you're not side A." But I just wanted to know. I was like, "So are you side? Like, how, where do you fall in this all and all this matter?" And she she gave a little chuckle and she said, "Oh, I thought it was obvious." And I was like, "I literally broke. I was." ugly like Viola Davis crying in this airport <laughs> it was uh-huh. so ugly but it was so cute I was just like because I mean what a privilege to have both your parents and definitely my sister to be so supportive like that for a lot of people you know not to say this is no indication about their 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 moral status or their, in, their intelligence but a lot of people won't make that transition and for those of us who are side a that transition does matter because if we're going to be married to someone and have kids it's nice to know that you're going to have your family who are going to be there with you, not just supporting you, but valuing the thing as much as you do, or in the same way that you do, I should say. So, yeah, I don't know exactly. I never came out as side B. Side B, this was a side B proper, if you want to call it that. This is something I kind of came into. And I think my mom and my my sister or whatever, they just kind of came along with that. Um, yeah, I think that's how that worked. I appreciate all that
0: and praise God for your mom and your sister and your dad. Like that's a gift. I a gift, such a gift, actually.
1: Huge, huge gift. A, a lot of people often will say, Paul, I don't know where you get the strength to do it. Like you must be a better mm-hmm. person than me. I don't, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's that I have a very supportive family and mm-hmm. having, knowing in the back of my mind that I have that strong of a base that's followed me at every step along the way, or mm-hmm. even been there ahead of me. My dad, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. instance, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, Oh Wow. <laughs> I think that's where I, I grab a lot of strength and maybe don't even realize it sometimes.
0: So let's go back a little bit. So this is so in 2019 is when you were side B, but then did you start transitioning to side A like post that? Like what was the process from like the side kind of the end of your side B era? Where did you move from there?
1: Yeah, so I would say so the cl- so I took a class in maybe 2018 while I was in seminary called The History of Philosophy. And also I took a Principles of Christian Ethics class. And a couple of the texts that we read, I guess this is a very conservative, theologically conservative institution. So even the most liberal, even the most liberal professors in our in in, in my seminary were no you know but so putting that there because the name the names of the title might be triggering for some people but the names of the books two of the two of the books that we read were by this this reformed philosopher named james k.a smith one was called who's afraid of relativism and the other is who's afraid of Postmodernism." and they really challenged my my absolutist objectivist ways of thinking about truth and how we come to truth and 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 long story short, what that means is instead of truth being this thing of arrival and maintaining firm, truth is a process of ever unfolding, and the way that the world appears, as far as its truthfulness or in its false, uh, its falsity, is something that is progressive and ongoing, and it's not something that's that's stagnant, or 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 static. I should say not stagnant, static. And so I took this class and I started to realize, I was like, no, wait a second. Okay, yeah, that actually rings really true for me be able, as I understand the Bible. It's like, yeah, salvation is by faith. is, And it's not this, yeah, the truth is a person named Jesus Christ. And Christ comes down to us in the contingency of our humanity. And so I, I really started to have to wrestle with, okay, if truth is a becoming and not necessarily a, 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 not a static kind of a thing, And if truth isn't some kind of an ongoing thing, then I might, then I have to be willing to crest to question everything that I've been willing to assent to. And one of my mottos is that I live by is, or I don't know if it's a motto or a maxim or whatever, is you can't begin to be right about anything until you're willing to be wrong about everything. And it's not to say that you're going to become wrong about everything, it's about holding things firmly enough that it doesn't just float away, but not so tightly that you crush the thing. Yeah. Um, think of epistemological humility. Yeah, a great yeah. deal of epistemological, yeah, a great deal of, of humility. And so those those revelations really started to, as I let them wash over me, I, I started to be comfortable with saying, well, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Or it's okay if I question it. And so many Christians, putting my pastor hat for a second, it's like, <clears throat> I I try to encourage people, like, like, whenever I do, I don't want to call it pastoral counseling, but. Pastoral care, let's call it that, with LGBT people who are talking with me, like they, they often will come to me and say, "Well, Pastor, what is this? What does this scripture say?" It's like I'm not going to tell you what the scripture says. I want to get I want to get people into a kind of posture where they're okay with being wrong and recognize that God's not going to be angry with them. God's not going to throw them in hell for being wrong. Where the questioning itself is you staying in your creaturely place, the unwillingness to con- to continue to ask questions of the things that we assent to is I think that's I think that's when we start to get the where we move from our creaturehood to try to move to godhood and Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually says something really poignant about this and he writes about this in his ethics he says this is my gloss on it and it's been several years since I've read it but Adam and Eve's sin was essentially found in that they were not willing to stay in their creaturely place they tried to have knowledge that was only proper to god and i would tack on to that that they try to have a way of knowing that is only proper to god namely objectively absolutely if you want to if you want to ascribe that kind of thinking to god and so a lot of christians i think are really uncomfortable with sitting in the question but i think i think sitting in the question is the way that we remember god is god and i am i am i'm down here on the earth so let my words be few and i i so i started to get on very comfortable with that posture such that when I thought about the side A side B debate and then also as I was attending to this LGBT care group that I was leading discipling whatever have, what have you it started to blend together it was like oh huh okay so I don't need to flip out that I think it's beautiful that these two people are are married to each other or they're dating each other you know these two people of the same sex or this person who's Transgender, what have you? Actually, transgender by this point wasn't even a problem for me. I was like, oh yeah, that just makes sense. Like transgender, the, the transgender, the matter of transgender was actually a matter that I became very comfortable with in, uh, in undergrad. I was like, well, duh guys, like this, uh, this shouldn't be that hard. But mm-hmm. that, that was me. Sure. It was the it was the gay thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <indeed>. <laughs> um. And so as I continued to study some philosophy and and get to what I believe is a biblical humility. In interpretation. And also as I was past pastoring these LGBT people who disagree with whom I disagreed in part, it was that fusion of things that caused my degrees of certainty or degree of confidence in side B to begin to wane. And I began to have a greater degree of, of certainty in side A. So that it was that process set in motion by just me studying a little bit of Christian philosophy or philosophy from a Christian within a Christian stamp, framework that began to get me back to a biblical, I believe biblical way of a biblical humility that opened me up to see that there are other possibilities that could be honoring to God. I'm it sounds like you
0: came at the question, especially through epistemology. Am I right? But, well, I mean, I sometimes wonder what if we approach it first through a different kind of part of the philosophical endeavor, like ontology, I understand that's part of the Catholic endeavors. we start from there. Yeah. And the part that's revealed. Mm-hmm. And then, and I don't think these are, they're not, these aren't separate. They're not separate. They're all intertwined in different ways.
1: Yeah. But yeah, what if you started somewhere else? Do you think you would have yeah. come from different so conclusions? I would, I would actually say because postmodernism and relativism are really, they really find their, they're very broad sweeping categories. There's not really but that, that's how that's how I got to where I was' where studying these very broad topics called postmodernism and, and relativism there's a lot of things that fall under it but those concepts themselves i'm speaking extremely generally they proceed out of mid twentieth century return to ontology um so actually i would say actually the way I went about it was was very ontological it was with it was taking the the way that beings in the world things in the world appear the significance that things have for us in the world like beginning with the fact that the world is already filled with significance for us instead of as in an epistemology or at least in enlight, enlightenment kind of epistemology where we're trying to figure out how it could be that the world <laughs> comes to have significance for us it's like what do you mean the world already does come to us with, with significance i'm a black person so when, I, when, I, when I'm as a black person, as I go through the world, the world is already comes to me with a certain significance that is referred to my existence, my, my ontological existence or the ontology of my existence, however you want to say that. It's all, the world already comes to me black, if you want to say it like that. And in, in a similar way, the world for me also comes to me as gay or colored by that, that, that aspect of my being, of my ontology. Um, and so, yeah, I would actually say it began from a place of of recognizing yeah th- that there are just limitations to me there there are limitations to me, and therefore I have to be careful of how I think my interpretations of scripture like what where how 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 sound they can be or how absolute or objective they can be. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I think that's I think that especially the tradition of philosophy I come out of, which is the phenomenological the the well, if the, the hermeneutical, hermeneutical phenomenological tradition, it's very much it's a return to ontology, a return to. Let's actually take seriously that we are already in the world where the world already has significance and meaning for us, and let's take seriously. Let's actually really consider. What that significance is doing; those significances are doing for us. What those meanings no. are doing for doing for us.
0: I, isn't I've always thought that the Presbyterian tradition you're emerging from is there are many Catholics involved in that tradition. Yet, like what is his name? Mur, what is his name? Pantu. What is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there's there's others. Whitehead.
1: No, he was. I don't think he was Catholic. That was Alfred Whitehead. He was a. Yeah. He might have been. I don't know much about Whitehead. I know he was the. I don't either. Yeah.
0: But even but even that I think the hermeneutical tradition I think it always intersected with the biblical theological traditional, mm-hmm. like that there's connected like Gadamer, et cetera, etc etc like there's connections Yeah, Gadamer there
1: Heidegger mm-hmm. all those all those other wonderful Sartre oh, yeah. Noir, all that kind of wonderful <laughs> yes.
0: individuals can I pull out though what like did teleology not make sense to you in this kind of framework you were you were describing because I think my my impression of the Christian tradition As in teleology like the ends of our sexual organs like the ends of sex those have been a prominent part of the argument like how were you processing these things as you were developing
1: like the philosophical perspective you had on some of these questions related to sexuality yeah that was a good question that's a very good question actually so when i started it wasn't until i started reading Immanuel kant which a lot of people roll their eyes at Rolling my eyes like, like, right now. Yeah, <laughs> everyone <laughs> rolls their eyes because no one understands him. No one understands <laughs> it because most Christians, most Christians read him as an atheist or agnostic, and I'm like, sure. I read him as very Christian. But even oh, whatever, okay. even if he was an atheist, like he, I think he reads more biblical than most Christians are. But it was, and, I, and I'll, I'll stand by that. Like I actually think Kant reads more biblical than most Christian, most the many Christians <laughs> as far as like, matters of faith and and things like that. How provocative kind of you! Yeah, yeah, oh <laughs> yeah. Listen, Kant is daddy. He's daddy, definitely. That's 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 daddy right there. But uh, <laughs> so, Kant. I won't get all in the weeds for it because I don't want to bore people. But like, here's here's the big takeaway for Kant: faith. <laughs> that's my reading on it. Faith. Kant was really concerned that. Christians were making these grand sweeping metaphysical claims about things that you can't, you don't have immediate access to, and requiring that if you want to be a good follower of God, you have to believe what the church signs off on, whichever church you belong to. And as the church articulates it, if you don't believe the bread and the wine do this mo- at the moment of this, then you're not saved. Or if you don't believe the pastor has this kind of authority, then you're not saved. If you don't believe the king has this kind of authority from God, if you don't believe that God is has this kind of a nature, that Jesus had this kind of nature. It's like, you don't, I mean, you have, you don't know absolutely those things. You have faith that those things are true. And so Kant tries to keep in perspective. Okay, there are things that I can say because I'm actually experiencing, I can I can apply a concept to, because it's right here in front of me, And it's like, like, right, this thing in front of me right now is a bottle. I can definitely say this is a bottle. Why? I'm experiencing it right now. On the other hand, I can't say definitively that God has these kinds of attributes or that my understanding of the way the Bible speaks about God's attributes are X, Y, and Z. I can infer it's like, oh, the text seems to be saying this. But if someone comes over and says, well, I think God's actually like that this thing actually means this, then I can't, how do I say this? I have to be careful not to make these these differences we have a matter of salvation, if you want to say it like that, or who can belong and who can't belong. Or at least we better be very careful in how we do that. We got to be very careful. And so one of the things that Kant wants to say is, okay, Christians, you look at the world and you see, or we see, all all this different design, what appear apparent design. And he says, well, actually it's, One account is, or the account he comes up, which he refers to a transcendental account, is that, well, when I look out in the world, my mind already has these a priori categories or concepts that are always already in operation such that the world always comes to me ordered by those a priori categories that, that are in operation. So let's say sense data is coming out from the world. Like I see penises and I see vaginas. And so there might be some, some faculty in your mind that takes those takes that data and, as it is in itself and takes it up and organizes it in a way that it, it already comes conditioned for us or packaged in a certain way for us. And so Kant wants to say, be careful what you say about what God's will must be according to what you're getting from nature because we're the ones who are organizing nature. It doesn't necessarily indicate something that's true about God. It might be true, but that's where the whole faith thing comes in. He's like, "Yeah, we might make in certain ways you might say that some of these things might some of these teleological findings might point to a designer and some say it's reasonable, but again, you have to have faith. It's not a matter of it can't be a matter of absolute certainty." And so for me, when I look at the when I look at the body parts thing, I'm just like we live in a broken world. First off, that's the first thing. It's like no, there is no ideal. How do I say this? There is, there are no ideal bodies. There, there is no. There doesn't seem to be any, any exemplar of what our bodies ought to be. Our sexual organs, our sexual orientations. Who has the right amount of this hormone or the right size of that? Or it, it gets really. It, it, we we start to play this kind of a sex gender sex and gender essentialist kind of a game that really doesn't get us anywhere productive because we're not actually beginning from the ontological standpoint, which is just to take seriously the way things actually appear in the world. Instead, we start to play, To I guess to use your terminology, we start to play an epistom- epistemological game of trying to work backwards to try to say, what are the things that must be going on back here that make it so that the world is like this? It's like, well, how about we just start with the fact that the world is like this And recognize that we're already always looking at the biblical text, which does say things about sexuality in in some way. We are always looking at the world, sorry, the biblical text in a way that comports with the ways that we are already given to organize the world. In other words, if I'm already raised, if I'm already given to, to see the world as essentially binary, there is no. That, that's exactly what you're gonna. What, what that we're gonna keep seeing when we look at the text, because that's what we're given to. The world is already worlding for us in the ways that that we that we're, we're for in ways that comport with the significance that the world has for us. And so it might not be that the word of God is saying. Just this as we strictly think about it, like in this it might not be just put might not be putting forward this kind of a binary, but it might actually be putting forward something that's broader. But the only way that we can do that is if we stay attuned to the world and consider faith. Faith and, and, and salvation is not a matter of getting to some absolute meaning in the in the text, but recognizing maybe this might be provocative, we as a community of interlocutors, of of people dialoguing. We are the text. We, I don't remember which Christian theologian or philosopher said this, but it was a really good point. And he's like, yeah, the community, it might be. Yeah, it's like we we are the interpretation of Scripture. The Scripture will never say something that we that we cannot see as being a possibility for it. So the the constraint on what Scripture can say is always us, even though we are trying to submit to the authority of the Scripture. It's this beautiful kind of, as I see it, kind of relating to... Relationship to the Word of God that is, again, doing that thing of holding firm to truth, but not holding it so tightly that we can't make maybe make modifications of it. That might have been all over the place, but
0: <laughs> no, it was great. I appreciate it so much. But I, I'm left wondering: Doesn't your not a, your account leave out the possibility of revelation that God directly inspired particular peoples, and also the maybe the people we call the saints, the most holy people? Oh, most have holy. Yeah, they have, maybe they have the, they have the most like they see they see the world the text most clearly with most wisdom, and they show us the path of excellency.
1: Yeah, isn't there? I, some, like, yeah, I think. How do you how do you put that together in the account that yeah. you're providing? That's what I'm. I wondering. think. I, yeah, I think that this this account actually preserves revelation. Preserve it, and actually, I think I think in, in the strongest sense. So. I'll, I'll go back to Kant for a second because I think he's, he he explains this really well in his book Religion Within the Bounds of Bare Reason, which I swear reads like a, it reads so Christian, like it's 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 amazing. <laughs> okay. Where he's like, okay, so I'll take want, word for it. Yes, we yeah, we we'll have to do a little study on it. I want to like, will, vind, yes. I want to write a paper one day, a vindication <laughs> of Kant as a theist. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> but he makes this he makes this claim that there are two realms. There's the realm of universal faith, and there's the realm of what he calls historical faith, religious faith. Universal faith and universal reason refers to that kind of faith and that kind of reasoning that all persons, no matter what religion you're part of, what background you're from, no matter what time you're from, what have you, all of us have this same kind of faculty or capacity. And so there are certain universal principles that if, if we're all seeking to be honest with ourselves or whatever we will all more or less line up on then he says when it comes to what he calls historical or religious or revelatory faith revelatory faith rever- refers to that faith which he says which alone can found the church the church remember is the calling out from the world the universal it's it's a particularizing of god's it is god doing something particular in the world, and the things that God requires of that group are not, it is not incumbent upon the world to follow. It is incumbent upon these individuals, called out ones, to follow. So importantly, Revelation doesn't have the character of universality. It doesn't have, in other words, what does that look like? So a person comes into a church one day who doesn't believe in God. Let's say they're an atheist. They come into the church one day and they see people, they see a person standing in the pulpit and this person is saying, I'm receiving a vision from the Lord or I'm receiving a testimony from God right now. That person, because they are not part of the institution of God, the, the church of God, the they don't have any, there's no incumbency upon them to submit to that claim, to believe it's true. Why should they believe that it's true? This, I don't know who that is. Like, why should I believe it? But that atheist person might be out 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 in the world, you know, otherwise living the kind of life that, at least in principle, follows biblical principles. And that's that's I think what what Paul is saying in Romans chapter chapters two and three, where the Gentiles who don't have a law, they may still follow the law in principle, in spirit, even though they don't have the letter. So there are certain universal principles that are universally available to all people, even if you don't have revelation. Revelation, it is incumbent upon those who are the called out to follow. So particularly when it comes to revelation, revelation for us is the kind of, for us who are part of the church, it is the thing that I have to submit to if I really want to say I'm part of the church. Because the church is the kind of thing that is created only because of revelation. We have to, there actually has to be faith that that person who's standing right there, who's, you know, who's preaching right now, I have to believe that that person actually really did you know, does have the accurate testimony about Jesus Christ. I have to believe that they actually are receiving inspiration. I can't prove right now that they're not in, that they're not just faking some kind of a trance, or that they're not otherwise deluding me. I actually have to have faith, and the moment I have faith that there is revelation, well, I better submit to it. And so it's us having to interpret. So there's like this kind of dynamic between us having to exercise our interpretive authority toward revel things that are revealed and say that is revealed from God. And then the moment you do say that is revealed from God, you must then submit to it. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of flow there. So that's, that's the kind of thing that, that's the kind of process I think maintains the possibility and, and the necessity of revelation while also recognizing that my interpretation of what is revealed is always going to be more or less what I think it can mean. If I don't ever think the text can say X, Y, and Z, no matter what, there's no way that text is gonna say X, Y, and Z. It doesn't mean I'm not submitting to the word. It just means I'm not God and I'm I'm a creature. I'm I'm not gonna get it right all the time. And that's why, again, that's why I think it's so important that Paul says salvation is a matter of grace. Um, It is by grace through faith you are saved, not of works or otherwise none of us would be saved. (laughs) So I think that's I think that's that's the kind of thing there that's going on. But Paul, at the same time, he also gives many statements on what to avoid. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that gets more. That would get more into a, a matter of. Okay. Let me. Let me try to think of a good example. So let's let's use women in their head and head coverings or men not having long hair. Some would actually, and there are some Christians today who still wear head coverings. I have a number of friends, you know, who are who are apostolic. Or Pentecostal, and they they wear wear head coverings in church because they think that's so. When they look at the text, they are reading the same words. They're reading the same words as us. What is happening though is the text measures up to them in a way that's just it measures up to us maybe differently. I don't know what you think on the matter. Like when I look at the text, I'm like, yes, Paul says those words, and yes, those words are true, and they're binding. However, you want to say that, and they're binding in that context, in that particular. They have a certain sense that they can't have for us because of whatever differences we come up with, whatever differences between our culture and their culture, however however we wanna go about negotiating it. It's not the, not my point is not even to try to figure out why it is that the text comes up different, We we read it differently. It's more to say, when we come to different interpretations, it doesn't mean that we're not reading the same text and that we don't perceive an injunction or a command or something. We're just like saying, okay, And in what way does that fit? Does that, how do I make, it's like, I don't know. It's kind of like, it's almost like putting a key in a hole. Like you have to to get the right key that pushes all the pins in the right way. And so we're reading the text. We see the injunction, but we're like, I don't know how that works if I'm trying to hold all these other things. Like, how does that work? There's no more male or female. How does that work? If there's no more male or female, but women must do this thing. And so some people, it clicks for them that, Okay, that must be a purely contextual matter, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I, I think I think that's the kind of thing that's going on. It's not that we're we don't look at the text and see commands and things like that, but it's to say the world always already comes to us, worlding itself in a way that comports with our values or the 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 significances that the, the meanings that the world already has for us. Which is again why we had to have faith that. Lord, I'm trying my best right here. I really am. Like, I see this text right here. I'm also trying, I'm looking at this text. I'm trying to, I'm holding a billion other things in in the back of my mind that I also hear from scripture. And I'm trying to make this thing fit with this other thing. So do I let all these things, other things go and hold this one thing kind of thing? We're negotiating. Interpretation is a negotiating effort. And some, yeah. And so I think that's what what I'm trying to preserve there.
0: But in the negotiation, doesn't the text have, in your account, does the text not have some, some power to resist the interpretations that we bring to from the world? And is that not what shapes us and continues to shape us? Because as your in your example, the so let's say there's a woman who's wearing head coverings. Previously, they didn't, right? Because they're like, oh, I maybe they weren't. They were distant from the church. It wasn't part of their life. And they come into the church. Then they start reading, oh, my church community says this. The Bible says this. I'm going to change in this way. Then they go to a different church. The church has a different hermeneutic about why we don't do that. But yeah, but there's still, yeah. Does, it, does the a text have a way to resist
1: our interpretations in your account? Yeah. Yes. And that's such a good question. The, the text resisting us is us. It is that moment of the community. Well, one being a community. <laughs> and this is why I think it's so important that we say that we are the text. I think okay I'm going to I'm going to try to answer the question I'm, my my ADHD is kicking in my undiagnosed ADHD is kicking in so I'm trying to go the temptation is to go very big picture but I want to answer just your tech your question I'm going to try to answer by going this way so when the Bible says the word of the word of God is alive and active what does it mean for the word of God to be alive and active sharper than a two-edged sword what I think that means in part is or at least the the way that the word remains alive and active is when the community of saints remains one, a community where we can hold each other accountable. And I think James K.A. Smith makes that point really well. We remain, the text maintains its authority as we continue to be a we. What does that mean? The text, the, the, the word of God has authority because it is an alive and active text. But the aliveness, it's not like the book is actually like teeming with life. It's not like a, like biological or something like that. Where does the life reside? The life resides in the Holy spirit filled community of saints who feel very deeply that I must continue to come back to this thing to continue to see if what I think the thing is saying is actually what it's saying. That, that doesn't mean however that i'm going to get to some absolute sense of the text we're always going to be negotiating our senses of the text and that is exactly what the text is alive where, where the liveliness of it the life of the text is it's i have to keep going back it's not i go to the text i get this absolute sense i'm never going to question anymore it's i keep going back and that that's the life it's like you have to keep feeding on you have to keep drinking, <laughs> oh glory to God, You have to keep going back to the well to drink deeply from it. It's a well that won't run dry, and if you the moment that we go and we take a swig and we're like, "I got it all, I'm just going to go that 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 well is no more life is no longer life giving for you, but if you keep going back and having a drink of I it, mean, that thing remains a life source for you, and so when we when so so yeah, so to answer the question does the does the text have the power to resist us? Yes, the power of the text to resist us. Is the community feeling very deeply that it must keep going back? If the community ever gets, and this is a a problem with many, with some churches, whether conservative or progressive, is there is this sense where we don't have to go back. I know, I know what it says. And this is something that conservatives and progressives do. We don't need the text anymore. I'm just going to, I have it. I know what it says, or I know what to think about it. The text will become dead. And so will your church probably. And so. It's the the life of the, the 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 livingness, the life of the text is in that moment where we say, "I have to keep going back." And it's that is the resistance that the text gives. It's the resistance of saying, "Yeah, I know you like." So it's like we throw our, we throw our interpretation at the text. The text is like, "Okay, that's nice. Try again, try again, try again," and you keep coming back. That's the resistance of the text. I like that, actually. I just came up with that right now. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Good job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm at this point, after I listened to your account, you and I are, I've lost some similar beliefs to you about epistemology. I read James K. Smith in college as well. He was revolutionary to me in a certain way. But.
1: Which but, one? Desiring uh, the kingdom?
0: Yes, but also yeah. I read "Who's Afraid of Postmodernism."
1: Okay, and yeah.
0: Also, the, what's that other book you said? "Who's Afraid of Relativism?" Relativism. Yep, those both those books. But I still don't understand why you're side A. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that of all that, the options, like why do you choose side yeah, A? There's only, there's only four except, options.
1: Really?
0: I know there's four options. I mean, I mean, we'll <laughs> see. Okay, Paul Anthony, I'd love to, but why? Be, I can understand some reasons why. Yeah, but. Why why? And also, I'd love it if you tell us your wager. What you told me previously. My wager. Your oh, wager. Yeah. Bring up <laughs> bring forward your wager so people can hear okay. it if you're willing.
1: Yes. Cool. So as I said previously, like the degrees of cer my degrees of certainty or degrees of confidence in side A and side B were shifting as I came into this posture where it was truth is a becoming so it's a you know it's an ontological statement. Truth is an unfolding rather than a step or the being of truth is becoming. The becoming is its being. So there's not this, yeah. And so once I realized that, I was like, okay, well, how am I becoming? Like, let me let me take note of how things are becoming for me. Like, how are things looking right now? Let me pay attention to how things are actually smacking me instead of saying no. I have to believe like this is my barrier on what I can think or or, or research or consider. I was like, well, let me. It moved it out the way, and so I could actually, like, huh, so this is how the world's actually looking. Now let me consider the the Word of God in light of this becoming, like, the way the world is actually becoming, because I have been so programmed to think, you know, if you even reconsider your Psy B theology, you're going to hell. Heck, the fact that I, I was saving Psy B was problematic, so going yeah. to hell for that, too. you just going to hell <laughs> <Sure>. for everything. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, it's the same kind, the reason, you know what, here's a good explanation before I get into maybe the, the longer word version. The reason I became side A is the same reason I became side B. It's the very same kind of process. I became, I just, I, I had, once I started studying philosophy, whatever, I, I had the language to actually describe what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I was already doing it from the time when I came out of the closet. That was me. That was me listening to myself. <laughs> and like sharing that with my chaplain to when I was in, to later when I had those experience, that existential crisis, that was me listening. And, and then especially when I became side B, when I was reading West Hill, like that was me paying attention to the world as it was coming to me. It's like, something doesn't seem, something doesn't seem right about this, about this way I've been going about it. And so side A was just what I came to as I continued to listen. Now, because I'm not a person who believes in absolute truth because I don't believe, well, I believe the the only absolute truth is Jesus. (laughs) Let us say that. But I don't think, I don't believe that if I would say there's any absolute truth, I would say it's Jesus, the person who is Jesus. But I don't think that my interpretations are the absolute truth. And that is always what I'm dealing with. And so I don't think that anyone I, I don't say, well, if you're really being if you're really being attentive to the world and and really opening yourself up to all the different meanings that scripture can have and the world can have, I'm not going to say that if someone that someone isn't doing that kind of opening themselves up, if they don't become side A. In other words, you don't have to become side A. Becoming side A is not a testimony that you're opening yourself to the world necessarily. Remaining side B is not a test is not an indication that. A person has not opened themselves and is not sinking back into the world of significance and considering it, because I don't believe there's any absolute stance that a rational person will come to. I think that rationality, oh my Kant says, is a process. It's a it's a very it's still a subjective thing. The objectivity is that the objectivity of rationale of rationalizing about the world is that it's something that's universally available. Oh, sorry. The universality of the of the ability for us to rationalize that's the ob, that's the objective that's the objective thing, but the ways that we go about reasoning are going to lead us to our own conclusions because we're different subjects. So I don't think that anyone's necessarily, if they're being rational, they're going to come to my conclusion necessarily. I just tell people it's like, okay, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. I just I, I just encourage them to please continue to sink back in the world. Because in my opinion, I think there might be something you can get, but if you don't come to it, that's cool. And I also want them to say to me, continue to to sink back in the world and to reconsider my my own positions. So I I think I could be wrong about any of the numbers, any of the number of things that I've committed to. Do I think that I'm actually wrong? No, (laughs) I hold it with a certain degree of, of firmness. But yeah, once I became side A, it was like, oh yeah, this just seems to, and and the, what what are the stakes here's here's the wager thing okay the wager yeah I'll you like the wager. you it. like that wager the other day <laughs> do like... i like it oh it just
0: makes me laugh it makes me laugh That's what yeah I it's like
1: you. okay it's like okay god you did not give me or i don't because of because of my human ontology i don't have the ability to know things absolutely like you do let's say presume let's say presumably god can know things absolutely i'm not gonna get into that i'm just saying let's put that forward Okay, so if God's the only one who can know things absolutely, that means that I can only know things in part or, or, or see, uh, to, use Paul, to use, was Paul's language? To see through a, through a dark glass dimly. It's like, okay, God, you designed me and I live in a world where things aren't always clear and we have to give our best interpretation and have faith. And you said that salvation is a matter of grace through faith. So if I get to the gates of St. Peter and God kicks me, throws me into hell because I did my very best, like I'm a pastor, I've done seven and a half years of theology, two and a half years of philosophy, lived my life twenty eight years i'm twenty nine years i guess now twenty nine years in the church, raised under very very good, good parents and my and all these other godly leaders I went to Christian school. God, if you're telling me that I did all that, and I really was and i and god God knows I was submitted to the Word of God read it every day, pray daily, you know, all these, all all throughout my day. And I'm going to hell because I got this point wrong. I don't want to be there with you. I really, I don't, that might not stop for you. I don't want to be in a heaven. I don't even know if I can call that a heaven where a being made me as I am and did not move heaven and earth to clearly correct and did not counteract those things. And I that's why for a number of years, I did not study side theology because I was like, I don't want to be deluded. I don't want to let my own experience cloud my judgment. But then I started to realize, now, wait a second, that itself is a bias. That itself is a fouling up of me not wanting to study something. And so if, yeah, if after all of that, not studying it for years because I didn't want to dishonor you and then I, and I study it and God did not prevent me from doing this thing, then either God is okay with that, and He'll be like, and I get to heaven. God's like, yeah, that wasn't the right, right thing to do, but well done, good and faithful servant. Or I get to heaven, and God's gonna be like, yeah, you did the wrong thing, and you're going to hell. If the second God exists, I don't want to be there with him. And that's how God actually is, and I think that's how we all have to. I mean, I would hope that we're all like that. Like for instance, if I like we're the the reality of the matter is we're all going to go to heaven, believing, practicing, doing things. That we should not have, and maybe we thought we should have that 's a simple fact of the matter if if we can go to hell for any number, for anything, we can go to hell for all these different things that we 're wrong in, so as I have to rest in the end of the day in the end at the end of the day, like Kant so beautifully states that salvation or not paul excuse me not counts paul that salvation really is a matter of faith god i 'm doing my level best, you see that i 'm trying if you want me to do otherwise, make it very clear and if i 'm prostrating myself before you in church every and 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 doing all these things trying to get in your presence and you start making it clear enough you really didn't care about it or you did care about it and you were okay where i was because guess what we have we have abraham a polygamist you know probably most of us m- most christians aren't going to agree with that guess where abraham's going to be in heaven david come on somebody all these other people <laughs> all these people who did not believe they weren't trinitarians <gasps> Oh my gosh, they weren't Trinitarians. Guess where they're going to be? In heaven. Or they didn't believe, they didn't go to, they didn't, all these different things. You know, if salvation can be lost on not holding certain propositions of faith, we are screwed.
0: <laughs> Maybe salvation is lost based on the way you live your life. I think so. And
1: actually Kant says that. Kant's like, you know. Oh my goodness. Back sorry, sorry,
0: comments.
1: sorry. I hey. Oh, Anthony. <laughs> I didn't know you go back to Kant. That, listen, all things lead back to Kant. Oh my goodness. For some people, all roads lead back to Rome. For me, it leads back yeah. to Kant. Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. Oh, but yeah, I, I just, I rest myself in Christ. I don't believe if there is a God, and I believe there is a God, I don't think God can be that kind of a being because then God will, would be requiring that I have a God-like way of knowing. And that's not possible. That was Adam and Eve's fall. That was, that was, the, that was the fruit of their, the, the, the cause of their fall, trying to know things absolutely. The devil offers them, hey, you want to know things like God? God's like, I told you to have faith or not in so many words, but I said, don't do this. That should have been enough. <laughs> and so right now I'm trying to do what I believe God is saying, do this. I, I don't think you're basically. earnest. I think you're earnest
0: in your beliefs. I'm not. Yeah. Oh, oh no, no. Yeah. yeah. Can, would you be willing to talk more about how, where you see sin in the account you're providing? Because I think at least some major Christian strands, Christian streams have emphasized how sin corrupts even our cognitive facilities, our cognitive faculties, sorry, even the like, our very reason. And I don't, you're the expert on Kant of course, but your beloved Kant I don't know if he's the one who I don't know if he engages in this but I think the christian there's a sort of there's a certain suspicion about some of the ways that we we engage in the world especially if we've not been with Christ for a long time you know and that's not your situation exactly as you've said you've been with Christ for a long time went to seminaries theology et etc et etc by having the godly leaders around you but yeah how do you, how do you put where do you put sin in this account and how has that your idea of sin have
1: impacted this wager you're making? I don't, I don't know. I think it's just the wager that all of us make, even if we don't know it. I don't think, I think, I think it just is like, if you truly have faith that you're saved, faith is that thing that you cannot, and then I'll get to the sin thing. Faith is the kind of, it's that thing of when I say this I believe is this is what I'm supposed to do, what God would have me to do. And unless I believe, unless I unless I sense that the spirit is telling me to do others, I will do this because I want to, because in doing this, I believe I honor God. I can't know with absolute certainty. So I'll, I'll, I'll use no in faith. I'll, I'll juxtapose those as opposites, even though I there's a kind of knowing that happens in faith. I'm just using those terms just to, you can know in a faith way and you can know absolutely. You can have a sense of knowing absolutely. I believe knowing, or you can, I, I guess really complicated, but let me say, I'll say it like this. <laughs> there's a kind of, there's a kind of knowing that we have when we have faith. It's, it's, I know that I know that I know that I know that I know. I, I grew up in a black church and we say things like, I just know that I know that I know that I know that I know. There's no, there's no way for you to absolutely prove right now that I'm saved. What is the basis of my salvation? Well God, I am I am literally submitted. I'm submitted. I'm trying to live the way of Christ. You honor if I take the words on the page which I think I understand, if I take them to heart, it says that that is what pleases you. It, that that I'm even trying. <laughs> For God's sake, if if the thief on the cross, come on somebody, if the thief on the cross can be saved in in the in the 11th hour, then <laughs> That, you know, and he was saved just by simply looking at Christ and saying, save me in this moment. I, he didn't have any proof that this man was actually the divine son of God. God didn't come down from the clouds and say, this man is, th- th- th-. he looked upon this man, noticed what the character of divinity and says, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it all on, I'm going to throw it all on him. And what was, what was that the
0: repentance? All... did he yeah. repent in that moment?
1: He did. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And repentance, we had to have faith that our repentance means anything. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Oh, uh, and, and so what does, what does, what does sin have to do with, 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 with this picture? I don't, I don't, I don't even, I guess I don't even really know how to answer the question. Cause like sin, the presence of sin in this picture isn't fouled up. It It, it isn't, it isn't something like, oh, now what do we do with this? It's like. I guess I have, to, I have to ask what what do you see as like the 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 what are the problems that we might run into with sin in, in my account? I, I don't know if I see it. I wonder if I wonder
0: if sin can can sin corrupt our cognitive faculties, our intuitive faculties? Can sin can sin like like maybe we think we're we're on this path, right? But could we be deceived on a path? Is that possible in your account?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, can, we yeah. can be deceived on all paths. Like, For instance, I would say, mm-hmm. air quotes for anyone who can't see him, I was deceived when I was side B. Deceived in the sense that I was incorrect. I was incorrect, et cetera. I might be now. The point of the matter is once we realize that faith is the grounds of salvation, not having absolute certainty on things, then it becomes a matter of, oh, I can be at peace knowing that, okay, if I'm wrong about this, either God will correct it by the time I die or whatever, however Whatever people's eschatology is, and God'll get it together, or God won't, and I'll get to heaven and God will still say, well done, good and faithful service enter into the joy of the Lord because you 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 fought the good fight, you fought a good fight, like you took some blows, you did some things that you weren't supposed to do, but you fought <laughs> I think that's what God I think that's what God is looking at when god is is looking looking for faithfulness God's looking for faithfulness you know that's, this is not to say God doesn't want right action right action however is a thing that we have to determine we have to determine like as i'm looking at the bible it's like okay like i see this head coverings thing but and that seems to the 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 face value understanding of that text seems to contradict all the other things that i also take to be clear how do i negotiate that well i don't live in the, i guess oh, i live in a different century different context different culture i'm not a you know all these different things, it's like, well, maybe that's the way I have to explain it. It's I'm trying to be submitted to the text and trying not to sin. I guess if you want to say it like that, whatever. That doesn't mean that I'm going to get it perfectly right. But God's looking at, oh, look at how well Paul is. He's sitting there. He's trying his very best to live submitted. That's the mark of a good Christian. Now, let's say Paul comes to the wrong conclusion on that, the objectively wrong <laughs> interpretation of that text. God's going to get to heaven. It's like, you try, go on in. I think that's. That's and that it took five years for me to go through that kind of a mental and spiritual shift, where sin does foul our capabilities, and that's all the more where I had to realize. Yeah, sorry, I I need to finish. I need to finish my thought. (laughs) I had to go through a five-year journey of realizing God's not arbitrary. God made us as we are. I have my limitations, and furthermore, once we add sin into the mix, oh, now I have not only like ontological like there's not only just like the reasons of you know there are not only reasons of like i i just as a as a creature am limited but now i'm limited because of sin oh i mean come on now we really do have to fall back on faith like it really must be a matter of faith salvation cuz now we have all these layers of things we have to get through and so yeah, I think that's I I say about that. Sin is not sin is not done away with. It isn't like gestured away. It's said it's actually a thing that should cause us to have even more of a of a posture of I could be wrong. I'm trying, Lord. I think that's it calls even more for that kind of attitude instead of the kind of absolutist attitude that that some have.
0: Yeah. But I think In some ways, I think that absolute or absolute knowledge is like the the boogeyman in your account. But like the, what do I say? Like the the thing to avoid. But I think a lot of, I think many people, even side B people, we don't, that's not what we're, maybe we think we have sufficient knowledge to pursue this path, right? Even if we don't have absolute certainty or absolute knowledge.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really good way of putting it. You have sufficient. Yeah. Absolute and and sufficient would, you know, so
0: yeah. And yeah, so I I'm curious a little bit as well about how what does tradition play a role in this for you? Like, let's say, let's say,
1: <laughs> ask I by know you Anglican. laugh in the S I, I the know, Anglican. I, to,
0: I know. I have to ask because I mean I think we are count I think in part we trust the tradition on this topic. Like their interpretation is continued long and continued sufficiently clear that this seems to be the the better one of the better account of the other potential readings that exist on this. The question is: Same sex sex, blessed
1: by God, ethical, moral, whatever. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on
0: that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So actually, there's a a couple friends friends of mine are coming out with a book. I think this year on, oh, what is the book called? It they're they have done years long in depth study about the notion of there being some continuous tradition about how the how the church has spoken on homosexuality. There is not there is there is i i i can't give you all the details they're the ones who did it what the guy's name is ed ed oxford the other the woman's name is Kathy baldock mm-hmm. yeah they're coming out with that book and it's it's i actually got to spend 2 3 weeks with him in la last december and january and he got to show me like he showed me these texts where it's like the term that's, the, the terms that are translated are translated as homosexuality and so forth just weren't there, and not even the the reformers didn't translate it like that. The church did not mm-hmm. understand it like that at any point in church history. Based on his research, where they they got access to these really cool archives somewhere in somewhere in L.A. I can't remember. I can't remember all the details, but I I will leave that to them because I don't want to I don't want to muddy the waters on that. But suffice it to say, there is extre- extremely good reason to dis. To, dis, to disavow any notion of the church having a consistent posture of thinking about homosexuality for, for a variety of reasons. One, just them not talking about it. That's the one thing. Two, conceptually, they did not have the concept of homosexuality as we think of it today. So any injunctions that Paul or any of the other biblical writers could have written about it was not, was not accessible to him. Now, some, sure. people, some people would say, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to do the whole... I'm not trying to go into the whole arsenicotia. I'm, I'm just looking at it as a philosopher, right? Like doing like philosophy of language and how our concepts relate to, how our concepts of things relate to language as as words as they're written on the page. The thing the thing that's a, that was available, that was within Paul's phenomenological horizon as he was writing, writing was not, it's not the same thing that we think of today. We, the, the concept of homosexuality today, today as we have it. Because our... Understanding of homosexuality is a full, very robust, uh, requires a very robust understanding of sexual orientation of all the different factors that lead to the development of sexual sexuality and so forth. And so whatever Paul was writing about, even if he is trying to say he is trying to speak about same sex sexual relationships in some degree, what we have in mind today for various historical reasons, sociological reasons, all the various reasons is just not could not have been what it is what is in his mind, because our understanding of homosexuality as it is today did not develop until was it 1800s? did not come out to the 1800s and really receive its its full its full articulation in the 1900s and then today, and so when i where was the question crash I, I got lost I got lost in the it's sauce about tradition there. oh yeah, our tradition, so when it comes yeah. to tradition, the mm-hmm. church. This did not have any articulations I, I i challenge for anyone to actually go and look at the text to go and look at our any ancient church writings middle ages to find where the church wrote any official positions on sexual orientation some people say well it was kind of like known it's like well we can't we don't go off of that when it comes to tradition at least our, the arguments i'm sorry go ahead oh uh, i basically what i was going to say is if there is some For those for whom tradition matters, and I'm not one of them, by the way. I'm not (laughs) really one of them. I
0: know you're not. (laughs) Oh, so you want to get to
1: that. Oh, okay. I want to get to that. (laughs) The Anglican he's waiting for. He's waiting for the opening. I know I am. I am. (laughs) I'm I'm just a simple restorationist Christian. I thought so. Yes, yes. But actually, go go ahead and ask your question. I I might be able to answer more specifically, then, instead of giving something general.
0: Well, I mean, I wanted general. I'm trying to understand your posture. okay. But I... I think the contention is not – you You keep – I think you're mixing categories. I think contention is just same sex acts. We're not talking about homosexuality. We're not talking about sexual orientation. Like we're saying that's the that's the potential issue that I think we're talking about. And I, I'm, I'd love to read
1: their work, when it, your friend's work, when it comes out. I wish they'd hurry up.
0: <laughs> yeah, me too. I
1: would love to read it. I thought it was supposed but, to come out last year, but I think it might – I hope he's coming out this year. I need to ask my friend about that. But at the same
0: time, we also see that the position that same-sex acts are moral is a minority position as Christianity has come to us now, right? Like the Catholics don't teach it, the Orthodox don't teach it, Anglicans have mostly not taught it, most Protestants have not taught it. So potentially that's the unfolding over, like there's a continuation, but the unfolding over time is that that's the teaching from the scriptures and the saints of the past or whatever, that is the path forward. I, That's what I, I'm curious about your thought. Yeah. That sort of that my small account that I just shared. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: I think I'm very careful about. So, so, okay. Another one of my favorite philosophers, which might cause <laughs> a lot of Christians to shake is Friedrich Nietzsche. He says some very beautiful things about yeah. history. He's important. He's important. He's very important. And yeah. he was also probably gay. I'm just going to go ahead and say that oh, he's interesting. probably gay. Okay. I mean, he wrote a book. I mean, he, what was what was the periodical he showed up? I think it was called the, it was the gay science. Obviously gay meant something different, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, come on, a little on the nose, Nietzsche. But anyways, whatever. (laughs) That's a little bit of retrospective reading of him. But so Friedrich Nietzsche, importantly, when he speaks about history, he was really concerned in in his historical milieu where philologists, those who study texts, and historians have become so mired in the enterprise of becoming more and more specific. Particular pedantic and definite about the things that happened in history, such that they were losing sight of the ability for them to freely do new things in the world. Said another way, they were so captured by becoming more and more like, oh yeah, that happened then, 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 then. No, actually it was this. That they were like, they were they were here not realizing, hey, our studies of history. Should be the should allow us to say, Hey, I'm I am burdened by my past, I have a past, I have a history that I always carry with me, but that doesn't prevent me from going forward and doing something new. And the history does not mean that that is what we must do or should do or only may do, but that the history is just a fact of the matter. Like, this is where I've come from. The history kind of. Constrains our possibilities for the future. It informs those possibilities. It doesn't say what we must do, and and Nietzsche was really concerned that the things that we must do now were being too constrained by history. Bringing that over to tradition, I'll say capital T tradition. When it comes to capital T tradition, however, people want to figure out whichever ones I'm referring to. I'm just going to say capital T tradition. When it comes to tradition, tradition is not bad. Tradition is it's inevitable. I'm sorry, lowercase t tradition is inevitable. And therefore, capital T tradition is also inevitable. The problem is when we use capital T tradition as a way of saying what we must do, instead of saying, how could I? Okay, so this is what I was, I was given. I like this stuff over here. But that stuff is this other stuff doesn't seem right. And it seems to really be blocking me from doing that other thing over there. Like, Women, mm-hmm. women traditionally, capital T, by the way, capital T, women were looked at as inferior to men. Capital T. Women are inferior to men. Standard, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever you want, Anglican, whatever you want to say, women are inferior. Okay, that's the tradition I'm bequeathed. Now I'm seeing women in the workplace who are being molested. They're being touched. There are all these different kinds of things that are getting paid as much as men for the same work. Huh? Okay. So I like these other tradition things. Like I like this, I don't like this misogyny thing. And it seems to be preventing me from doing something that I perceive the spirit would want me to do in advocating for women over here. So instead of my tradition being the thing that says what I must do regarding women, I say, well, what I see about how I go about living in the world is going to be informed by this capital T tradition. But that doesn't mean that I can't change some things in what I do with, with women. And this goes for any matter. So how do we actually, I think James K.A. Smith actually does a really good job with talking about tradition. There's a few things I disagree with him on. I don't remember what they were, but I remember I was like, eh, I don't know if i will go that far, but I think he's very right. The tradition is a thing that not only we receive, but in some sense, it's helpful for us to continue to carry it. But it's when people are unreflective of what to carry on, when the tradition, when we, it's almost a carrying on, carrying tradition for the sake of carrying tradition, I think leads to dogmatism. That's the kind of dogmatism in part that I think that Nietzsche and Kant <laughs> before him is trying to critique. It's this carrying on of dogma, of dogma and tradition without reflection upon do we actually really want to carry that on? Is that actually what we want to do? Is us continuing to carry on the tradition in its totality? Is it actually honoring the tradition, one? Or do we honor the tradition actually by saying, let's modify X, Y, and Z? I was, I was reading something. Um, I don't know if I want to put this under capital T tradition, but I'll, I'll just I'll just use it as a little t- as a tradition. I was looking up what Monsignor like. Where, where does that term come for, from? I know like it's something that's used in, in very very high church kind of things, whatever. And I was and I was reading an article, and it was about how Pope Francis has not has either granted none or has granted very few very few people that designation of Monsignor because even though it's a tradition to do that for certain people to show respect, he noticed well. This is my gloss on what, on the article, how I read we it. We want to hear your gloss. Yeah, go ahead. Granted, what can, I, I can only ever give you my gloss. I can't ever give you what the text actually says. you right, the, but yeah, I, I want I to hear I your gloss see. right now. <laughs> so in order to, because he's keeping an eye on the culture that we're supposed to be ministering to, but he also wants to keep an eye on the tradition. He's like, okay, I'm not going to give out as many of those things because I want to see, I, I recognize we have this tradition to preserve where we have the high church elements and all those different kinds of things. But I'm also recognizing some of that stuff is blocking our ability to minister to people who are who feel that there is a barrier that's being put between the church and them. And I was like, that's 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 Pope Francis, good for him, living hermeneutically. I, I that's that's one very small example. But I think that's how we can keep tradition, or not only. Excuse me. That's how we can do two things. We can both recognize how tradition inevitably ontologically follows us we are our histories we are our traditions and we can also we can also meaningfully overcome them if we need to modify them and secondly it preserves our sense that in certain ways we actually want to preserve tradition so it's not only inevitable but we want to preserve it and so i think that it's keeping that that door open for us to modify it that's how we actually honor tradition instead of just saying well the church supposedly, believe this, that, and the fifth about same-sex activity. And again, according to my friends, there is none of that. So that, that that would be the challenge. But even if they did, do we actually honor the tradition by not continuing to update it? And do we honor the word of God above all things and Jesus? Update. Update.
0: Update.
1: I don't know about <laughs> that. I, there's a lot to say on that. There's a lot but, to say. I know. The, I feel the Anglican in you. Just like
0: <laughs> There's a lot to say on that. <laughs> Yeah, no, even about the scriptures there's probably more to say about the scriptures but there's a lot to say on that too yeah 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 I think, I think there's more <laughs> dynamics because sometimes it's about preservation mm-hmm. what goods do we preserve maybe I'll say that for now what <laughs> goods do we preserve <laughs> not just what do we update yeah so I appreciate your. I appreciate this idea that we the, the faith is always coming into new places new contexts. Mm-hmm. so the question always does emerge how is it negotiated again how is it fresh how does it speak to this place and that inevitably involves the the shift and a new, something new, something different. But then what are we going to do with that? And in my, in my opinion, the the contention right now is, is side B or side A, the the new reformation for the, the church on this topic? Like what is like God doing in the world? Is it again, side B or side A? And I have a position, you have a position, but in some sense, we won't, we, I don't think we'll see the, the culmination of our decisions in our lifetime necessarily of the, of the, the, the argument to the cont- conversation between our positions. So maybe we will, who knows, but let us see. Could I, could I ask you, I want to, time is not our friend right now, but could I ask you, how do you relate to side B people now? After you, obviously, I know you have side A, B friends, like you, have you shifted? And also, I do you want to ask some question that's been, that I've been wondering since I spoke to you recently, do you think that side B people are following like the, the higher ideal for queer people, but God also still accepts side A ethic? Like oh, won't that's a really good you?
1: question. Yes. Which one do you want to answer first? I want this question I just asked you. Is that going first? Yes. For yes. I- yes. <laughs> okay. So I don't believe, I don't believe side B is is the will of God. Okay. Now, let I me, mean, as soon as I say that, I'm pulling back on that because I believe, <laughs> because I believe the will of God is always a thing that is discerned sure. and interpreted and interpretation yes. is necessarily, yes. it's, it's that thing of us just trying to make it, make the cogs work. Mm. So I don't believe that it does not strike me that side B is what God, what God would have for people. However, I recognize that other people, for other people, it will smack as, I mean, it did for me for a long time. And I fought, I fought side eight people sometimes about it is, you know, side eight people will feel like that is the will of God. I believe the will of God is more than just like, objectively, this is the absolute, there's a will of God out there in the universe somewhere. It's in God's divine mind. I think the will of God is more than just that. Let's say that, let's say that like in the mind of God, there is some will that God is sitting there willing right now. He's like. I wish they would do X with their sexualities. I don't know if that thing that's in God's divine mind right now is what God is most concerned all necessarily. I don't know if that's necessarily what, I'm not saying this as a, as a sophisticated point. I'm not certain that's what God is necessarily after. I think God is after, do I have servants who are faithful? I was like, it seems to me that you're being sanctified Because of this relationship. And that's when I was like holding that very strongly. I was like very side B as far as like holding it very firmly. But I was like, hmm, I can see, I can, I'm seeing the spirit of living God in their lives right now. And I can't, I can't, I can't deny that or, or get around that. So I, as far as like, if I were to say what I think is in God's divine mind, I think it's side A. Like, I think that God would have it that way. I think that as far as God, this wanting faithfulness, and how God is, you know, God's spirit is constantly moving with people. I think that God is mo- mo- is really interested in faithfulness. Now, how do I relate with Side B people? I, I as I'll say, I'll just, I'll just say exactly what I did when I was Side B ministering to or interacting with Side A people. I would wish them well in their endeavor and just and pray and ask and and you know hold them accountable to continuing to stay in that. In that posture of being open to being wrong, if I see someone not doing that on any matter, being willing to be wrong, then I'm gonna be like, okay, that I don't, I don't think that's faithful. I don't think it's faithful ever for us to not being be willing to to question the things that we believe the Bible says or what have you. I think faithfulness is the questioning. And so when I interact with my side friends, if they're still Quietfulness is questioning. Yeah, it's, I think it's a questioning or staying in that posture of I could be wrong and being okay with that. And so when I interact with my side B friends, you know, there was a period of time, there was a period of time where I didn't, a, a few of my side B friends, they didn't contact me anymore. Or I didn't, oh, hear, really? I, did, I didn't hear from them. It was a very few, very few handful. Oh, you, like, I, you I, became I,
0: dangerous? I, like you became a dangerous person? Who yeah, might...
1: they were very concerned that one of my friends actually said that he was concerned that I was on my way to, not hell, but that I was, I had been perdition, Yeah, something like that. And he meant, well, I was really offended by that. I was like, sweetie, excuse me. It's like, it's like, we're not going to do that. That's, that's a really messy way of doing Christianity where you could see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life. And you have said as much as, as recently as whatever recent time we just spoke. But now I tell you that I have a, I have had a propositional change in belief and now all of a sudden you see my salvation is in, in, in change. It's, I was like this, it's giving unbiblical, it's giving projection. And actually most of my friends, when I, when I, when I, when I brought that to them, they were like, yeah, I was projecting my own insecurities that I no longer have you as a comrade. And I got that as a Saiby person. I remember when people would leave that group online and there was all that pain and, you know, and sadness and heartache. And I, I, I got that. And also. And so I, I, so I, you know, from that, from that vantage point, I understood it. And that was actually, you know, even when I was side B and I noticed that I would feel that way. It's like, why do I feel this way? It feels like I'm almost losing someone. And I guess it is a kind of loss where it's a very difficult, side B is very difficult. I, I think it's, I think it's harder than side A as far as at least side A people, we have one part of the church that's on our side. Side B people are attacked from both the conservatives and the progressives. And it's just like. I recognized immediately as soon as I was a side A, I was like, oh, thank God, <laughs> Like this is so not, nice. but, and so because of that, I still advocate for my side B friends. I have, I've had conversations with, with side A friends who are, who were very hard on side B people. And I, I'm like, that's not how side B works. You weren't side B. So don't tell me how it works or how it worked. You don't know. Cause you didn't have to do that. So before you jump to conclusions about how side B people are just denying themselves needlessly, or how they're just they're they're misreading the text, or they're just doing this or that, this, it, it, before you reduce it, how about you consider that you did not actually go through that? And even for those side A people who did go through side B, remember where you came from and remember how hard it is. In your zeal, don't become mm-hmm. so zealous that you step on people, because remember how that felt. Mm, so that's, thank you. That's how I relate with Ivy people now. <laughs> that's worth so, appreciating. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still trying
0: to, I think. Go ahead. Do it. I'm trying to put the pieces together. This is, everything you said was excellent. I'm so glad that we have you as our comrade in a certain way. First, the side B side. thank you. But I still think, I don't know, we still represent like normative challenges to each other. Side B and side A in some ways, actually in many ways. And it's a it's it's like impressed in our bodies, because we we engage our embodied nature is the thing that actually we are we are kind of describing about and how we live sexually. It's not just bodied, but it's also embodied in some sense. So I'm hmm, I'm trying to figure out how to engage with side A people because of that tension, especially for you, you had a shift where you don't think it's salvific. You don't think it I think the salvific has it's re, uh, reduced it's changed or reduced in its level or it's altered in some way or the the moral stance of this topic has done the same but yeah do you do you feel to what extent do you think we're wrong i could you, <laughs> could, you, could, you could you pull that strand out a little bit you you okay. touched on that in the previous one but yeah
1: yeah so i i think the thing that that's mm, the thing okay so there's a few things and they're all her, they're hermeneutical in nature they're interpretive in nature i think that for me, when I was when I was side B, I recognized a lot of insula- insularity. Is that a word? Like it's like, a- yeah, okay. I noticed a lot of insularity where there was not there was almost a an unspoken rule or a convention to not question. There were people who questioned, of course, and they many of them left. Some of them didn't. Many of them many of them leave. Or they're still in the i b group and they're still questioning, but there was almost this posture from some from some people to not question they a- actively discourage, and I think that that is unfaithful. I think they're trying to be faithful, but I think it's I think it's unfaithful, and I think a lot of side b people are afraid of going to hell, losing their churches, and that causes a spirit of fear that cause that leaves us not being willing to consider an option that maybe pleasing to God. That, that was my, my big, that was my really big, big concern is not willing to question and active. And some people actively almost discouraging the questioning for the preservation of the community. And that's not all side B people, by the way, there was, there was a few people who were in my mind, leaders and so forth who in word and action, almost discouraged or disincentivized questioning. The second thing, Is and I'm really I'm I'm privileged and I recognize I'm very privileged in this regard. I I'm doing doctoral studies on matters of language and and interpretation. So I realize these things aren't things that people study, and I want to make them very accessible for people. I don't know how accessible this conversation we've been having right now is. You have a sociologist and a philosopher sitting down and talking about. (laughs) So for all the people who've made it this far, God bless you. I hope God gives me the spirit of interpretation. Amen. <laughs> but yeah, so the other part is also interpretive in nature, and it's mm. where there are a lot of there are some very complex matters. There are some interpretation and, and, and understanding language and how language works is very complicated. And that goes without saying. And when we look at the biblical text, there's all there are and I'm not even talking about our 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 interpretive methodologies. I'm not talking about like exegesis and so forth i'm talking very high level hermeneutics as a disposition and hermeneutics as a historically conditioned enterprise where again like i was saying like kind of talking ontologically like our who we are our who we are is going to always bear upon the text the text will always only say things that comport with my being in the how i am in the world how i exist in the world that one, I don't know. But the first one, yes. <laughs> Continue. Um, I mean, the text won't ever, I, no matter how many times I read the text, I don't care how many times I read the text where it says you can own a slave, I'm never going to think that, it's, that the Bible is okay with owning slaves. I don't care how many times I read Ph- Ph- Philemon, or how do you say it, I'm never going to think that the Bible actually is okay with reading the text. Even though slave owners said to abolitionists, you are twisting scripture because the Bible says, if I want to own a slave, this is what I have to do. Paul, as, as as recently as the New Testament, Paul was returning a slave back to his owner. And the abolitionists were like, okay, spirit of the text before the letter of the text. Come on, it's like, come on. And so it's, they were like, they were, there were there's a certain sense like, there was no way the abolitionists were ever going to see it. And guess what the abolitionists didn't do? They didn't go down and sit down and come up with a methodological strategy to understand the text better. They were like, we're paying attention to the world. We're looking at the world and saying, okay, and the world is bearing upon me right now in a certain way. I see these slaves with these whelps on their back from where they've been beaten. I see runaway slaves being returned and to their to their their, their enslavers. And, and I, I see all these different things, they're on auction blocks. That's inhumane. I don't need a scripture to say explicitly that that's wrong. And as the world is bearing upon them and they look at the text again, they're like, Oh, look at the story of Moses. That's a story of liberation. Look at the text where Paul says, "This for freedom that Christ has set us free." Sure, it's not talking about you know slavery expressly, but there's a certain spirit that they be, of the text that they became aware of as they let the world increasingly bear upon them, and then let that bear upon the text. I wish that the people who are listening to the podcast could actually see the hand motions because it's important. But whatever. But and importantly the slave the slave owners did not look at they did not let the world and the concerns of the of, of the enslaved africans bear upon them as they read the text they were like they already had a certain value they were already like i don't care i don't care about their suffering i'm a i'm a i'm a white man and i want to own land and i want to make money i get to own you because of that and by the way the text says it says it right there but they already had something they were bringing into the text abolitionists were raised in that very same society but what did they do they looked at the world they're like you know i see how they're reading this text right now that doesn't seem correct and and it doesn't seem to get the spirit of the text right they're getting the letter i mean they're reading the letter but the letter is dead right now unless you're reading according to the spirit and so they're looking at the text now with the world the concerns of others in mind And so I think that what are we talking about? How do we get here? <laughs> I mean, we were, oh yeah. And so, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and so I, I think that that's, I think that that's the kind of move, mm-hmm. that we're supposed to make when not even supposed to. I think that that's what it means for us to be faithful when we read the text, remembering that we are in the world, the world is already bearing upon us, and therefore is being born upon the text. And is what it's coming to us when we're reading it. the The trick, however, is to not become just what he, where Heidegger says, not to just be a uh, just be at the whim of Das Man, the man, or the, the sorry the the they, the the this the way the way society is. It's it's that thing of freedom when I can look and say, huh, I'm give I have a certain tradition, or the lowercase t or capital T, and I care about it in these various ways. And I recognize how that's bearing upon me right now. But unless, if I unless I recognize unless I'm willing to reconsider that I could live a different way or reconsider the text, I can't really say I'm free. But hey, look at that! I can reconsider the text, and so I am free. So our ability to reconsider the text is is an indication of our it it is our freedom, and. I was really concerned, that's what we were talking about. I was concerned at Side B, like the discour- like discouragement, whether from within Side B or from straight people, to not reconsider it. And then, secondly, when we're looking at what it means to interpret this idea that there is some absolutist way of looking at the text, where it, it's just, it's fraught with all kinds of concerns. And the tradition I come out of the philosophical tradition I come out of is one that is really concerned with sinking back into the world and not taking an absolute stance, taking a a posture about, about, about the degree to which we can be certain about the things that we, we hold, but rather taking a posture of just sink back into the world and let the world proceed out. Let the, let the world like flow with the world, like instead of like standing on the shore and looking at the biblical text as just something I can look at as over there and I can see its absolute meaning is over here it's like sweetie that river goes all the way down there and goes over there, connects to another river which jumps out into the ocean which connects with all the other various bodies of water but so that's what that's what the the this absolutist approach to interpreting scripture is the hermeneutical way of doing it is to jump into the water and go with the flow and look at how how is the world actually flowing how is the text as alive and re- responding to the world's situations how is the text alive if we are if we're already committed to the the objectivist approach the absolutist approach you're not going to see how thousands of miles down the way the, the the river dumps out into the ocean or whatever analogy you want to use you have to be willing to jump in and flow with it. And as we do that, I think that, I, I would hope more side B people, people are, and side A people. I guess you asked me about side B. I, I would hope more side B people are willing to at least jump into the water and flow, but that first takes faith. <laughs> do you think we've not already? No, I don't. As a movement, e- I, don't. E- I, I don't. I don't, so, I, 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 and I don't say that to be, to be hard. I'm saying that as a person, no. when I was side B, yeah, that I saw. I saw that. I, I saw a lack mm. of that, very poignantly. And si- and if if people want me to balance it, out, I'll say side A people do it too. No, no need to balance. I'm just <laughs> okay.
0: I'm just curious. Perhaps one day you'll see a side B phenomenological account, and you'll change. Your
1: mind. <laughs> 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 yeah, let's just say all the phenomenologists are affirming. <laughs> well. Maybe that's Catholic ones, but oh, there's a lot of Catholic Come problems. on, come on, there's yeah. Catholic ones. But also, that's, that, they often do a different kind of phenomenon. Oh, well, that's, okay, that's a different, that's a different <laughs> But, anyways, no one wants to hear about anyways.
0: all that. And, anyways, Paul Anthony, it's been so great to have you on. I've yeah, had hope, a lot of um, fun. I hope, I'm curious which part of our audience this will appeal to, but someone somewhere will appreciate <laughs> this sort of <laughs> philosophical musings. So, yeah, I'm like, oh gosh, like, how,
1: how philosophically <laughs> did he want to go with this? Because I, I wanted to go there. You I wanted, wanted to go, go there? So okay, I really, thank you for I really bringing appreciate it. that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> thank you for bringing
0: it. Yeah, I hope, I hope any of our listeners keep engaging with your work as it develops. And yeah, let's see, perhaps, you know, let's see what the future holds for you. Whether it's side yeah. A or side B or something else. And with else. you.
1: <laughs> and also with you. Yeah. Thank you. And also <laughs> with me. <laughs> I got a husband for you. <laughs> oh, do you? Oh, thank you, Bob. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> that, was good. that was so one. <laughs> I appreciate that. Anyways, yeah, thanks so much.
0: Hey, listeners, I want to let you know about the Communion and Shalom Patreon. Joining the Patreon community not only supports this podcast, but gives you the opportunity to listen to bonus content, give input on future episodes, and submit questions for a patron-only Q&A. We're so thankful for the support and encouragement from so many listeners, and we hope that this podcast continues to be meaningful to you.